Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Rachel. Thanks for joining us today, Rachel. Rachel and KJ are married, which should make for an interesting episode. This may be the last time we see KJ on this show. Rachel also conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then once the fierce competition is over, we followed up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by KJ. The movie is Afterlife from 1998. Uh, this is a Japanese film in the drama fantasy genres. The director was Hirokazu Koreeda. Uh, he's also known for directing movies such as Maboroshi in 1995, Nobody Knows 2004, Still Walking 2008, Like Father, Like Son 2013. And he recently did Shoplifters in 2019, which was nominated for an Oscar for the best foreign film. Some other big movies in Japan during the same time period were Bayside Shakedown, The Movie, which was a conclusion to a Japanese cop TV show, Pokemon, the first movie, and Ringu, which was eventually remade into The Ring in the United States. Another imported movie that was very popular at that time was Armageddon. Afterlife is a movie that starts at the beginning of the week, and every week, a group of people who have died enter a facility that's kind of like a dormitory, something like a DMV. Um, the building reminded me of like an old abandoned high school. Uh, and there's some social workers, we'll call them, that work there. And the people who have died have a week to choose a memory to take with them to the afterlife. The social workers then work with the dead person to recreate the memory and film it. And at that point, the person will ascend, maybe too strong of a word, into the afterlife with that memory. Um, during the movie, we learn a little bit about some of the workers in the facility, and we follow a few of the patients, a few of the dead people that struggle um, to choose which memory they want to take with them. So the reason I chose this movie is um, a while back now, my future wife, Rachel, um, who is no longer my future wife, she is my wife now. Back then, she was not my wife, she was a future wife. Uh, her, she and I taught English in Japan for a little bit. And while over there, Rachel had reached out to a local community group that um, helped foreigners integrate into Japan. And one of the things they did is they had a movie night. So we did not see Afterlife during that movie. We, we watched another movie, which was great. Hopefully we'll get to it on this show. Um, but it made me realize there's probably lots of movies in other countries that aren't big enough to make it over here, but they're worth watching and they're, and they're awesome and they're wonderful. Um, so after we got back from Japan, I started trying to find some smaller movies and stumbled across Afterlife. Um, it's not a particularly special or you know, great movie, but um, I've always wanted to discuss it with a group of people and here we are. Okay, and now you have a captive audience for said discussion. Tom, uh, do you have any history with this movie? I don't have any history with this movie. I knew about Shoplifters, the director's latter film. I think it's a 2019 film, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the, the one that was nominated for an Oscar for foreign language. But outside of that, I have 
I have no history of, of this film or even this director. Um, I, I really enjoyed this a lot. And what was especially striking about this movie was uh, the dramatic tension or the dramatic ups and downs are very flat. The, f the film feels like um, the surface of a placid pond. It, it's just smooth and even and it, it moves forward and the dramatic ups and downs are very slight. Therefore, those kind of those emotional moments feel a, a lot more earned and we're able to, I don't know, meditate on the situation more. I think meditate's the wrong word, but I do like that, that kind of change in dramatic tension. Uh, my vast history with this movie began on uh, what episode, uh, KJ, would you like to do for, uh, sorry, what movie would you like to do for episode 11? And he said, Afterlife. And I said, sounds good. And that's the extent of my history with this movie. Uh, I didn't even want to watch the trailer because I like to go into something like this very fresh. I don't, I, I don't know what I'm, I'm getting into, especially with a foreign film. And that was my approach. What I will say about the movie is I felt that the movie felt pretty much as it was portraying purgatory. It's not great. It's not bad. It's kind of in the middle. And that's kind of how I felt. But I think that was also by design of what this movie was portraying. And that's just my, my thoughts there. I'm happy I watched it. Uh, is it my favorite movie? No. Is it my least favorite movie? No. But there's plenty of things we definitely can talk about uh, in this movie. Now, Rachel, I'm going to turn this over to you. I know it was inspired by your trip uh, with your current husband, who would have been your future husband at that time. Um, any Was this any history with this movie? Not until about a week ago. Um, KJ had mentioned that you guys were watching this movie. I had a small inkling that I had watched it before. The name seemed very familiar. Um, in hindsight, I realized he must have just talked about it a lot, but I had thought I had seen it and probably about five minutes into the movie, I realized I had definitely not seen this before. Um, so I had zero history and like you, Nick, I did not watch a trailer or uh, look anything up about the movie. Um, so the line, you died last week, was very confusing and very uh, caught me off guard because that was not the direction I thought this movie was going in. Um, so yeah, so not really a whole lot of history. Um, it's a movie that I don't regret watching, but um, not sure if it's one I would definitely recommend to anybody. But I'm excited to talk about it. I felt the same way. I think it's for a, a unique audience that would really appreciate it, but not for the general masses. Uh, now, of course, when we have a guest, there's always a critical question we ask them. If you could recommend a snack to enjoy while watching this movie, what would that snack be? This was a hard question because I was contemplating Reese's Pieces, Snickers, popcorn. And then all of a sudden I realized it doesn't have to be that kind of snack. And I realized a beer is what I would recommend <laughs> because if you want to watch this movie in one sitting and then two hours, you're going to need a beer to get through it. Okay, I think that's a good recommendation. And on that note, uh, let's get right into the meat of the episode. I'm going to be turning it over to KJ to start us up with the movie quiz. It's time for movie quiz. All right, I've prepared a few categories for you guys. This round, each question will be worth one point. And the categories are, you can't take it with you when you go, the happiest place on earth, and 
Judgment Day. So Rachel, which of these three categories would you like to start with? They all sound like excellent categories, but I'm gonna go with the happiest place on earth because that one intrigues me the most. It's time for question one. What ride does Kana go on after eating pancakes in Disneyland? Locked in. Locked in. I think I'm locked in. Okay. Rachel, what ride does Kana go on? Is it Splash Mountain? I had Splash Mountain. Trifecta, Splash Mountain. All right. One point for everybody. Yep. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, um, Kana, who is kind of a younger person, I think she's still in high school, um, that is going through this transition, um, is asked, what memory do you want to take? And she immediately goes towards a school trip where she had fun with her friends. Um, but through the course of the week, she kind of changes what memory she wants. Um, and I think a lot of the people in this movie kind of go through a transition where when you first think about, oh, what memory am I going to take with me? The more you think about it, those surface memories kind of start not seeming like what you'd want to take. Um, did you guys find any interesting transitions that people went through during the movie? This is a bit of a tangent, and we will definitely get to your actual question there. But when I was listening to these documentary-style interviews, all I kept thinking, and again, the variety of ages, and this might just be a personal bias, the older people, I was like, okay, maybe they led a good life. But I was really like thrown aback by the younger people. I wanted to know their backstory of how did they die or what happened to them, especially like the young girl that we're talking about with Splash Mountain. Was, was it an illness? Was it something trashy? I, I, I didn't know what it was, but it actually sparked that thought in my brain. And then I had to go back to what the movie was actually doing. But I, I just wanted to bring that up at this point because that's where my mind deviated to when I knew I was supposed to really be paying attention to their journey. Yeah, that is interesting. The movie does not dwell on the cause of death at all. I don't think we get a single... Yeah, the, the one I think we, we see is our protagonist, Takashi, uh, mentions dying in the Philippines. Um, but outside of that, it's... They're, not particularly interested, it doesn't seem like they're particularly interested in, in how they die. Um, what they're interested in, or what the, the what do we call them, the DMV staff, <laughs> how everyone described them, um, <laughs> they're interested in helping them curate their past so that it can be captured in a moment. Um, and so with the, or this is my reading of it anyway, with the, the young girl whose name was... Kana? Kana, thank you. Um, she's she's comes to the the staff and she says you know she has the splash mountain memory and then um siori i think i said that right uh one of the other staffers there tells her you, you're like the 30th person in a year who said this do better and the the kind of do better i mean she's not that harsh but that that's the the undertone um and i think that that kind of do better means it, it kind of implies memory is is a means of kind of taking responsibility for your life. And the act of curating, the act of selecting the right memory that encompasses it is your opportunity in this, this middle space between one life and the next to, to do that, to, to collapse your life into memory, to curate responsibly, to understand yourself in a responsible way. 
And I think one good example of that is the, uh, the older man who talks about, I think, picking out prostitutes. He's talking about the brothel. Um, in the end, what we learn is the memory he picks is not um, that he was able to get a discounted prostitute because he waited till the end of the night. Um, but the memory he selects is his daughter's wedding. Right? We learn that at the very end. And I think that's, that's sort of the, the arc that a lot of these characters are taking or are supposed to be led through. They're supposed to be led to, to this. This is not something that's just supposed to give you pleasure. Um, it's something that is, is supposed to allow you to end who you were. Yeah, it, it's interesting at the beginning of the movie, they kind of have an orientation and they tell everybody, you have till Wednesday to pick the memory. And at first I was like, you have three, four days to pick a memory? But really that's not enough time to distill yourself down to one thing to bring with you. So to that point, and again, they don't really go into this in the movie at all. I, we make an assumption that they're on 24 hour days, um, but in my mind, and I, I kind of brought this up in the earlier part on my thoughts, this is a depiction of purgatory and these are, you know, not, maybe not DMV, but purgatory staffers, okay? And we don't necessarily know what time is there, you know? So, but I do think that their intent was to model it off of a 24 hour, but we actually just don't have evidence. They did actually say at one point about the little kid, she, he said, I died three years ago and she was three when I died, so she'd be six now. That was the only time I heard them connect the time in purgatory to real time. And it seemed like it was minute for minute, but. I would think that is the case. I just couldn't remember. That's a good point there, Rachel. I just couldn't remember them like explicitly saying they, I know there's seasons and whatnot, but I, yeah. And it's the same with Takashi too. Takashi knows that his ex fiance has married this other person because He's, she, he's able to see her in a video 70 years later. That doesn't track unless you have the same time. Um, the, the, other th I, you know, the other thing too is I, I'm going to push back against this idea of calling it purgatory. The idea of purgatory is, I mean, beside it being this kind of like purely Western thing, um, is that you're sort of redeemed in purgatory. Like you have to pay a penance for, you know, for, for your sins, you like carry around a big rock or, you know, whatever um, for 500 years. I mean, yeah, that, that's kind of this idea of purgatory. Um, there doesn't seem to be any kind of, there's no necessary redemption going on here. These characters aren't put in a place where they need to be redeemed. They just need to account. And I think those are kind of different processes. I think it's a little bit of interpretation and semantics too, because purgatory is an in-between. I mean, there's some philosophies that say we're in purgatory right now. Um, so they did have to go through a personal journey to reach the doors of the afterlife. But again, it's just one opinion versus another. You could almost consider it like a Zoom waiting hall because it didn't matter what their memory was. They just had to have a memory to go on. So like, you know, that space when you join a Zoom meeting and you have to wait for the meeting host to let you in. It doesn't matter if you, what things you do before then, you just have to like be someone that they know to be let in. So it's, to Tom's point, like it's not, did we like your memory or not? I thought it was interesting that they told the girl about the Disneyland 
you know, kind of do better. You're right. Um, but you just had to have one, right? Because they said, if you don't have one, you don't go on. So that was like the one like reveal I really did enjoy with this movie is when we find out that one of the staffers, the reason this is when we found out like why the staffers are there is because they did not choose a memory. So then finally, I, I know this is a major arc and I hope I'm not going into too deep depth too early, but that was interesting. I was waiting to understand why the staff was there and where they came from. And again, angels or other, you know, celestial beings, they were just people who hadn't moved to the next step of the journey to the afterlife. So I, I did like that specific element in the movie. Let's move on to question two. So Nick, you want to choose a category? I am going to pick Judgment Day. Dun, 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 dun. It's time for question two. One guy, whose name is Isaiah, asks if being good or bad mattered during life. What did Isaiah initially say he wanted to take with him? Locked in. Can I ask a question? Of course. Was he the guy that we found out through him that the staffers are people who don't pick a memory? Was he the one that was kind of like, I don't want to pick a memory? <laughs> was that him or was that a different person? I'm locked um, in. <laughs> or is that the answer? I'm locked in! No, Just no, kidding! I actually was already locked in. I had my answer. Yeah, that's, that's I kind of locked in also. <laughs> one point for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> We're tied still. Sorry. <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna uh, take the onus here. Uh, he's the one who who didn't want to make a memory. I say he oh. wants to keep a dream. He wants to take a dream he had. Wow, I like that answer. And um, Rachel. <laughs> I'm gonna go with he's the guy that did not want to pick a memory. All right, one point for everybody. You are correct. At first, it seems like he's just being uh, ornery. First, he seems like he's just being difficult. But like everybody's saying, in the end, you find out all the staff were that guy at some point. Could you imagine being stuck there trying to, you know, work with everybody and figure out what your memory is for years on end, possibly? I think the staffers actually, in the case of the, the, the main character, he actually gave up on searching for a memory, I think. And then it kind of hit him with that exchange with the other gentleman who, in after he had passed away, uh, married the woman he loved. And that realization brought him to his memory. I don't think he was act. I think he was content in this uh, waiting list. Yeah, I, I think he was content there. What prompts Takashi to move on is that he was, he says he was the happiness for someone else. Um, and that allows him, that allows him to, to move on. It's, it's kind of, um, I, and it's, it's interesting. I'm not quite sure why that one thing allows him to move on, but it gives him the contentment he needs to not have to do this anymore. When Isaiah, 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 who's this kind of like, I think he's 20 or 22. He looks like a punk. He's wearing leather pants. He sits, he's the most, um, kind of openly disrespectful of all the people. I mean, the way he sits, he kind of puts his legs up. Um, this is compared to another guest who asks permission to move his chair. Um, what we learned from him is that he's not so much just being openly defiant, but what he, he tells 
um, Wanatabi, another man who's, who's struggling to pick a memory, is that this is his means of taking responsibility for his life. And th that's something that Wanatabi echoes later on. While we don't get the impression that Issei is a particularly responsible person, it is an interesting kind of wrinkle in the whole thing. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure what that means. It almost means instead of selecting a, a memory from your life in order to say goodbye to it, um, it's this like, you have to kind of live with who you are for years and years and decades and decades. Um, so maybe it is kind of a purgatory process, Nick, but for the, the staff instead of the, the people coming through. Yeah, along those lines, I think the people who come through just come to that realization quicker, where the staffers are more of a, a longer path. Um, I did find it interesting that this process they're going through, while short, really does make them reevaluate and contemplate their life. So maybe that is that cost of admission is just being one with yourself. And maybe not just picking that memory, but all that process, all that thought you had to think about what your life truly was about would prepare you for the next stage of, I, I don't want to say existence, but afterlife. And what, what's also interesting is there's the one man who can't think of a memory and so, because his whole life was miserable. So he comes up with, as a child in my like dugout or playhouse, something like that, you know, I I want to remember that when it was dark. So there's only sound. So his his entire life is is sort of reduced to this sound he heard as a child. And his kind of salvation or what he, he finds so wonderful about this process is that he doesn't have to remember. Everything is wiped out. He gets to, I don't know, start again is is the right term, but he gets to to um, escape what his life was. And it's interesting because I see that as, as the counter to Isaiah's um, idea of taking responsibility for life, right? That if you leave a bad life, you can, um, you can say goodbye to it entirely. You can forget the entire thing. You, you know, you could kind of gain the system. So you, you forget virtually everything. And yet here's Isaiah who wants to remember everything in an act of responsibility. Uh, and I, I found those kind of distinctions both interesting and what I liked about the film is both of them were treated with equal respect. They're both uh, valid options, it seems. Was the one with the sound the one who wanted to remember an infant memory? No, that's a, that was interesting. That was a different guy, but that, that was interesting. One with the sound, I think, was older, right? Like yeah. Man. Oh. He was 50. He had died at 50, and, and you know, because he meant even if I lived longer, everything would be horrible. You know? Another thing um, Isaiah said was, why does it have to be a memory? Why can't it be a dream I have? Why can't I just make it up? It, you know, it, it, he, he didn't literally say this, but why can't I take a memory of being Superman and flying around? Um, and I thought that was another interesting angle on this whole thing is, yeah, why does it have to be based in reality? Uh, but the, the workers were like, that's not the point of this. You can't just make something up, which goes back to your point, Tom. Some of the guys are trying to shed the responsibility. Some people are trying to hold it all in. Some people are using it as a reset button. He's one of the ones that I was like, what happened to that guy on earth? What, what did he do? What did he get into? All right, let's uh, move on to the final category, which is you can't take it with you when you go. It's time for question three. So for this one, we're going to go around the table and you guys are going to name memories that people took with them. So only final memories. 
Uh, once you fail to produce a memory, you will be kicked out of the table. Um, and we're going to say whoever survives the longest gets the points. So, Rachel, you want to start us off with a memory? The memory that had the playing. I'm going to mention one I already mentioned to take that off the table, which is the man who's thinking about the prostitutes but ends up selecting his daughter's wedding. The old man sitting on a bench in the park. The guy who remembered the incident when he was four months old and nobody believed him. <laughs> um, the girl who initially picked Disney World Splash Mountain but then went with being held close by her mother. The young man who also went to that same park bench. That's the main protagonist, yeah. The woman who was the fiancé that never got married to Takashi and then became married to the other guy. We eventually saw her memory, and I believe it was her memory that was also sitting on the bench, but with the first fiancé, not the second fiancé. That was my next go-to. <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking that. That's great. Tom? I'm going to go with, because I already mentioned it, to take it off the table, the darkness inside the clubhouse. The lady who remembered dancing in the red dress. I think they were red shoes, too. Rachel, you got any more? Maybe. I don't remember if this was a memory or just a side story, but the woman who was talking about the earthquake, it was either in Kyoto or mm -hmm. Kobe, because it stuck out, because I was like, I remember that's a real thing. Yeah, her, her memory was um, being out in that bamboo forest, I believe, and then swinging on the swing, and they were out there trying to make rice. And Yep, excellent. Tom, you got any more? The man whose memory is being a young boy riding the streetcar, standing up next to the driver of the streetcar. Yes, yep. Nick, can we squeeze any more juice out of this lemon? <laughs> I think I need a moment. I'm going to step out. Okay. Rachel, you have any more? I feel like the young woman, the worker, who was kind of in love with Shikashi, or at least that was my interpretation of it. I feel like we saw her memory, but I don't remember what it was. What did we see her memory? No, I think she's still working there by the end of the. I think I think I think she does have like a, a flashback moment, but I don't think she picked her memory. All right, Tom, for the win. The man who went in war remembered the salt. He was looking for salt. They were trying to chop down the trees. Then he remembers getting captured. Um, and I could work with these people. And then he just eats the salt, you know, <laughs> like handfuls of salt. And he won a chicken then. But yes. Yeah. yeah, then later he gets a chicken. It goes on and on. Funny thing about that, uh, harking back to our Castaway episode, he, he says when he tried the salt on his skin, it didn't, or when he tried the sweat on his skin, it didn't taste salty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's yeah. just a thing. Mm. He's walking around. Um, <laughs> Tom, and Tom, do you have any more just to... The woman giving birth. It's a very short one, but she talks about like, um, I, you know, if you remembered all the details, you would never do it again. And yep. so she starts, you, you get the inference there that she's going to, um, she's going to do. And then there's the woman with the kind of like, it, it's like a flower brooch who's like talking about like she's been with a few men and this one man was particularly um, attentive to her. Uh, when, when they were together, and she tries to remember chasing him down on a bridge. That memory is later, we learn, maybe fictionalized, that she's made it up. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that's what we get from her in terms of a memory. Great. Any more? Uh, we did, the, did we do the man on the... Oh, 
Oh, we did the man on the plane, right? The man. Yes. Uh, yep. Yeah. There's one Reach guy who talks about committing suicide. He's going to commit suicide. I think it's hard to, you have to kind of read it, but he's, he's going to jump on train tracks. And then he has a vision, I think of his mother and sister. And then he doesn't. There was something he was about to do it. And then like the way the, I think it was the moonlight mm-hmm. off the train tracks. And then he made him think about the, uh, the yeah. girlfriend and the mother. Mm-hmm. Yes. Good memory. I, I, I forgot about those ones. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if the one counted with that lady with the colorful brooch or whatever the heck that was, because I think that was, they like, they refuted it and was like, timeline doesn't make sense here. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why I didn't say that. Cause I'm like, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what she actually did. Yeah. Make. Mm-hmm. When Nick said I didn't know if that counted because they refuted that timeline. That actually brings up a really good, totally separate tangent. But if you misremember a memory, does it still count as a memory? I think they called that one lady out on it. So I, I don't think it did. But like in the grand scheme of life, right? Like if this is, right, if that's your reality, if that's how you remember it, is it fair for someone else to say that's not a memory? If that's, that's your like lived reality, right? Like that's what is in your brain. So to speak. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. The the only scene I think of is that one gentleman who couldn't really figure out his memory. So they gave him 71 VHSs that had one year of his life each on it. So I don't know if there's like a backup like resource that they have that could because how are they gonna make these videos? <laughs> it seems interesting because it's it's not because that that's what I was thinking too, was that they have the memories, they have the videos already made, but you have to make the memory, again, you, you are responsible working with a, a staff of professional filmmakers uh, of creating, recreating this memory. And what you take with you isn't what actually was, it isn't the truth in the world, it's your remembrance of the truth, your ability to recreate the truth. And that recreation filtered through your, your kind of subjectivity that's what you take with you. So it must mean that I, I, I kind of read this as the subject who makes the memory is as important as the, the facts of the situation. Yeah, and the only other memory I had was there was the old lady that was like collecting acorns or something. I believe her memory ends up being a time under cherry blossom trees. Mm-hmm. Um, but great, so point goes to Tom and that concludes round one of the movie quiz. Okay, well, that was a fun one, KJ. I can't wait to see what you have in store for round two, but we got to pay those bills and we'll be right back. Perfectly Placed is a service where we perfectly place instructions, items, and other things you need to get you through your day. But not for me. Let's hear from one of our customers. This is John, and I'm being paid by Perfectly Placed. The other day, I was wondering, what movie shall I watch? And I realized... I really wanted to watch the sequel to Herbie the Love Bug. I knew I had the VHS. It was somewhere in the house. Was it in the bin? Was it in the cupboard? I couldn't remember. By the time I got to the VCR, it was already sitting right there for me. Thanks, Perfectly Placed. I knew I could count on you. I put the VHS in, and I went back to my couch. And just as I sat down, I had that thought we all do. I forgot to grab the remote. I looked to my left, and right there, on the armchair of the sofa, was my remote. Thanks, Perfectly Placed. You've done it again. Perfectly Placed. We get around to reminding you what you'll get around to. And we're back for round two. KJ, what do you have in store for us next? 
All right, going into round two, Nick and Rachel are tied at two, and Tom is in the lead with three points. In round two, all the questions will be worth two points unless we need a dramatic ending. There are three categories. The Hills Are Alive, Stuck in the Middle with You, and Memory, All Alone in the Midnight. Let's do The Hills one. The Hills Are Alive, there we go. From The Sound of Music, yeah. It's time for question four. There are two scenes in the movie Afterlife that have a score if you include the end credits. What other scene in the movie has a score? There are two scenes that have a score if you include the end credits. So the end credits has music playing behind it. What other scene in the movie has background music playing in it? I have an answer. I, I'm not entirely confident of it. I'm locking this one in. I guess I'll lock in. All right. Let's start with Tom. I'm going to say when we are in the movie theater and we're watching um, Takashi's Memory. Okay. And Rachel? I thought it was when the coworker lady went out for scouting pictures. I have a, for some reason, I feel like there was music there. And Nick? At the end when they're doing the graduation, I thought there was music, but I can't remember if it's background score or actually a band, so. Yeah, that band kind of confused me. I didn't really know how that fit in with the rest of the movie, but the points go to Rachel. The answer is when Shiori was out um, scouting for locations and she's in that city. I'm not sure if it was Osaka Tom or it might've been Tokyo. Um, but while she's out there, there is a movie score playing, and it's the first time I'm pretty sure the movie has a movie score. Um, the whole movie feels a bit like a documentary, but even that's almost giving it too much credit for what genre it's in. It, it, it's a, as Tom was saying before, it's a very flat movie. The whole feeling of how this movie was made doesn't feel like a traditional movie. And this also is it partially documentary. A lot of these memories are real people who are interviewed with regards to their memories, right? Like, you know, they were asked this question and they had to recount it. And we are, we are seeing that in the picture um, with certain actors mixed in, like a, a, a Wanatabi, you know, definitely is, is a guy played by an actor. Um, but a lot of those people were, you know, just, just people who were recounting their memories. So it does have a, a kind of... Um, a cinema veritas aspect to it. As I was watching it, I, like I said I, I did not know what I was getting myself into. The first thing that struck me was I felt like I was sitting across the table from one of my English students in Japan in many of those interviews. And it was very weird because it, I was thinking, I don't feel like I'm watching an actor. I feel like I just asked one of my students, like, what is your favorite memory from your life? And they're they're telling me even like the, the cadence, the way they were speaking, their, their, um, the way they were holding their body. And then all of a sudden they would interview someone and it would be very obvious to me that this person was not just retelling a life story. And so it, that was the first time for me, it kind of felt like a documentary, but I was like, obviously this isn't a documentary, but my first thought was, it feels like they went out on the street and like that, that, that very tiny, the red shoes woman, like the very tiny old Japanese woman, you know, she was 
that's exactly what it was like sitting across the table from an older Japanese woman in an English class. And I was felt like they just went out on the street and said, hey, would you come in here and tell us about your favorite memory from your life and just sat her down at a table and had her start talking. Um, and as the movie went on, there was more and more things that made me feel that documentary feel. But somebody said about it was like a documentary, but not. What was the movie where they had the cameras and they were running through the forest? Blair Witch Project? Yeah. Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. That's what this movie reminded me of in the beginning with the camera. And it was like, this isn't a documentary, but it like wants you to think it's a documentary, but it's not. That's a lot of the camera work made me think of Blair Witch and that style mockumentary I don't know what they're called they're not mockumentaries but whatever the Blair Witch style is called the the Blair Witch thing is sort of like a, a, a fake documentary right you know like it's not really a mockumentary I think that's more a satire of of the form but it's sort of like a using the documentary style to create a particular type of atmosphere um, which goes back I think the first movie that did that was it was in the 70s it was like I, I can't remember it now, but it was it was famous because there was a law case where they're actually like, you know, um, investigated the director to see if he actually had killed these people. And they had to come to court and like, no, we're actors. It's, this reminds me of that film Up in the Air. And in Up in the Air, they do the same thing. They have actual actors come in mixed with real people. And those real people recount um, an experience of being fired from their job. And so they talk about that or, or you know, what they're going to do now that they're fired. And then you see real um, real people who've had this experience, and then you see like Zach Galifianakis, right? And, and you know, it, it's a way of kind of grounding it. I, I found it kind of abusive, almost, and up in the air. I, I found like we were kind of looking at these people as uh, spectacles of grief in the way. You know, losing your job is grief-inspiring, certainly. Directly related to this question, one of the things in the movie that I totally miss, and I'm just recounting now as we go through these questions, that scene, Rachel brought it up in a prior question, and I was also a little confused about where that location was when she was on top of some kind of business building or tower. It's interesting that that's the one place that has a score, because I didn't realize when I was watching this that that may have been her scouting locations on Earth. So maybe this is the one time we're outside of purgatory. I'm sorry, I'm going to keep saying purgatory. You guys can say waiting list, whatever your thoughts are on that. When they're out of this, you know, building, okay, this 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 place, that's the one time we hear background music is what could still be Earth. So I, I didn't connect that, but it makes sense that everything in that place, and I'm going to stick, as I said, to my view of purgatory, everything is kind of, it's okay, nothing's bad, nothing's great, it's just kind of, the, the place isn't super lavish, it's not a total dive, everything is kind of, monot- I don't want to say monotone, but like it doesn't have uh, levels, you know, it's just, it's kind of flat, and then the one time we hear background music is on an earthly location, so that's just something that kind of came up through these questions that I did not really even think about when we were watching. And just to, uh, to correct myself here, the, the movie I was mentioning was Cannibal Holocaust, and it was 1980, not the 1970s. Let's move on to the next question. Rachel, if you want to choose between Stuck in the Middle with You and Memory, All Alone in the Midnight. Stuck in the Middle with You, because I don't really like cats. It's time for question five. What book does Shirori say she's in the middle of reading? Locked in. I'm going to say locked in. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there with Rachel, I think. <laughs> the World Encyclopedia. I was going to say the Bible because I had nothing else, but I like Tom's answer. I also like Tom's answer, but I don't have an answer, so I just said Sun Tzu's Art of War. (laughs) (laughs) All excellent books to take with you to the afterlife, I suppose. Um, But yes, Tom is correct. It was the World Encyclopedia. This was one of the first times I feel like the movie kind of was driving home the idea of being stuck somewhere forever. Every so often, there's a little bit of symbolism of being stuck and having enough time to say, hey, you know what? Why don't I start reading the world encyclopedia from front to back? That sounds like a good idea. Um, so did you guys notice any other symbolism or just blatant things that showed they were stuck there? Yeah, I, I actually don't, just a little side. I don't think she was saying that she's stuck there because she makes a choice to be there. She's just saying, hey, I got, got time. So same thing you're saying, like, I got time. Stuck implies that there's no way for her to get out. She could get out whenever she wants to pick a memory. True. But I guess the, um, the struggle of picking a memory is harder than being okay with being stuck in a DMV for <laughs> eternity. Yeah. No, I agree with the rest of the question. There's a lot that talks about when you have this endless amount of time, but that was the one, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know about a, a, a symbol or something like that that represents being stuck. I mean, they have a lot of resources. I just get the impression they can get things from this city they're in. What's kind of lovely about this depiction of this middle space is the the sort of material life of these things. Like this is, these are lived in spaces um, and quite dilapidated too. Um, But I I think when you can see the, the DMV staff playing they're playing a game and they have one guy cheats in it um you know things like that these these kind of uh, go arounds yeah they're playing a game like chess and as he realizes he's about to lose he gets up and knocks the board over accidentally because he had to go to the bathroom because he had to go to the bathroom so again they're, yeah. they're stuck in this dmv where there is an end to this game like nick said all you got to do is pick a memory but they are all maybe purposely knocking the board over so that the game won't end so that they have to continue to be here and they're giving you get you get reasons both directly and indirectly as to why so there's one man who is there because he wants to see his daughter reach age 20 right? he wants to make he feels it his his responsibility as a father to to visit her he's able to do that once one day a year and he that that's his responsibility once he gets past that point you get the impression he's he's willing to go um, with our, our female lead, Siori, I, I'm not, you don't really know why she's remaining, um, but her most active role outside of the fact that she's sad to be losing Takashi is that uh, she tells that young girl, you have to pick a better memory, right? That this, is, this isn't good enough. And, you know, when I saw that scene, my, my thought was maybe that's her problem as well, that what she's doing what she's curating hasn't been able to happen yet that she's not good at that or that she hasn't uh, found her her memory the other thing too with her is her attachment to to uh, what she says to takashi is pretty interesting right she says she's going to keep him with her inside of her from there on out that she's going to kind of take on this responsibility of memory within the framework of the the dmv space that to me was really, really interesting. And I, I don't quite know what to make of it. 
um, other than, you know, this kind of human thing of I'm in love with this person, I don't want to forget them. Well, and she's got to be careful, right? You could get some recursion going on there. If you want to take the memory of making the memory of making the memory of making the memory, it's a dangerous thing to take a memory from the DMV. But I don't have any good memories of the DMV. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're all kind of memories of the DMV, though, right? <laughs> I mean, all of the, all their memories that they're taking with them are filmed. There. Right, right, right. You're not taking them. Yeah. So it's all, it's all recursive. It's become kind of her new, her new home. Right? And when she gets the job, at the end of the film, after uh, Takashi goes into the next life, she's promoted, you, you can assume, to his job, that she's going to do the interviews directly, she's going to um, calculate how to, to refilm it. And she's, she seems overjoyed. We've never seen her this happy. And it seems like she's, she's found a, a life in this place. And I don't think the movie's judging her for it. No, what I was going to say, going along those points, it comes down to purpose. So in this movie, the purpose is the memory which gives you access to the afterlife. But this is commonly represented in a variety of media and movies when it comes to spirits and ghosts. They're stuck on this plane. Sometimes it's actually Earth or somewhere in between until they've reached their purpose. This movie just categorizes the purpose or the entry ticket to the afterlife as choosing a memory, but it's still following that same trope of you, you're stuck until you fulfill your purpose. And maybe uh, the, the actress that we're talking about right now, the character, the female character, she just hasn't got to the point yet where she will fulfill her purpose, just like it took our other main character 80, I think he's, in, he's 80 years of service in in this way station to hit his she may be also on her path and people get there on their own different time frames so let's move on to our final question um, which is the category memory all alone in the midnight which is subjective being subjective i will ask a question you guys will all give your answers with no specific criteria i'll pick my favorite one and award two points it's time for question six whose memory do you think was the best in the movie i'm locked in i'm locked in okay i'm gonna be locked in as well i i'm i I, i've selected one and i'm playing to the audience so to speak all right tom play to the audience so I'm going to go with the older woman who they assess is not developmentally past nine years old um, and her memory of being under the cherry blossoms of so the cherry blossoms. We, she doesn't say this, but we see it in the, in the filming section, the cherry blossoms falling on her. Um, and I, I think this memory is um, worthy of consideration as the best because it's the the most directly material it's a person who's interested in the the present tense the here and now the beauty of the immediate to such an extent that the that which is most important to her is like the physical flowers and aspects of nature that are, are directly before her and so it both embraces the natural world and it embraces the the immediate and the present that that can give you pleasure. What of, what of the present can give you pleasure? This may be a little out of character, uh, but I actually think that the best memory was another older lady 
but the one who had vivid memories of dancing in her youth with her red dress and shoes, she was delightful. I mean, she had such joy and enthusiasm with this memory that you could see how impactful it was. A lot of the other ones, they say their memory, but I think really her, you felt it along with her about how this was such a, an amazing and tremendous memory in, in her mind and at a point of her life. I really thought that one was, was very strong. I'm going to jump on Nick's memory, but for a different reason. Uh, the older woman with the, the red shoes, maybe the red dress, I don't remember. That one sticks out to me for two reasons. One being that it wasn't, to an outside viewer, it wasn't a momentous occasion. It wasn't anything important. It was literally just an afternoon of her childhood. But yet the the clothes she was wearing, the relationship she had with her brother and her brother's friends um, was obviously something that she cherished. And the, the second part of why I liked it is kind of what Nick said. I felt the most connected to that memory. I felt they did the best job in getting audience buy-in as to why this would be a wonderful memory. Um, and it kind of made you feel like you know, it doesn't have to be something big and grandiose and wonderful. It could just be the time that you spend with someone in your life could be one of their best memories of their life. And so it was a little bit audience gratifying in terms of thinking about, you know, if just hanging out with someone for an afternoon or, or giving someone attention that they, that they desire um, could be a, a really big deal. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go with that one. And Rachel, I'm glad you brought up the part about the, the brother. Hey, no taking my no, answer. I'm just saying. <laughs> you are used your no, point, I'm just man. saying, I'm glad you brought up the part about the brother <laughs> because she actually, there's that scene then goes on to about how, uh, she cared for him till the end because, uh, you know, they were that close and he died a few years before she did. These are all excellent answers. Um, the points are going to go to Nick and Rachel. Um, Tom, your answer was excellent. And I, I, I really liked your argument that there was the here and now, which is a wonderful thing to take with you. Um, but what I liked about the memory of the red dress is it was very human. And she got to share that memory with the workers in the DMV. Part of what I really liked about this movie was not so much the memories, but the fact that they, the dead people got to share the memories one last time with strangers who, you know, it's their day job. I don't know if they really care, but the excitement of, of sharing stories and communicating with others and, and taking something that happened to you emotionally and, and bringing that to other people is one of the most wonderful things about being human. And I thought her, her memory really exemplified that. So points go to Nick and Rachel. Going along with that memory, you know how they, they create these movies to mimic the memory? This goes back to my thoughts on there's a young girl that they're filming. Is this young girl dead? <laughs> Did she die? Did they have to wait for someone of that age or can they borrow somebody? <laughs> for a role and return them so i just wanted to throw that out there to the universe i was like that poor did they kill a girl so they can make this memory that's a really good point i hadn't thought of it's all i thought of <laughs> yeah the, the the rules of the space are 
pretty uncertain. Um, it, it seems like he's concerned, the director and writer are, are concerned with the, the kind of restriction that you have to pick a memory, otherwise you can't move on. Um, everything else is, is sort of liquid, you know. Um, we, we need a little girl, we get a little girl. How do you get a little girl? I, this is kind of not the point of my movie. Let's, let's move on past it. The nice version, Tom, is that she came back from Afterlife on Loner. <laughs> that's that's the yeah, nice version. Something. I mean, it's it's almost kind of like, yeah, it's like, like where did they get a plane? You know what I mean? Like, they, you, you know, do they have this, like, incredible props closet? Paper mache. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it, it just seems like the f- question of physics are, are irrelevant to anything he's trying to do. And so he just does not care, right? There's, there's, he's clearly not setting up a rule-based universe for us to, to indulge in. There's one rule that's important. Everything else is kind of, um, is kind of a little bit up for, up for change. Well, KJ, those were some great questions. Uh, Rachel, I'm going to have to congratulate here for taking this one down. We still seem to not be able to defeat a guest. We're working on it, but we just haven't gotten across the finish line yet. We're going to have to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back with our movie rant shortly. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of the podcast in which a group of B-Side. KJ here from Talking Pictures Trivia, and I'd like to tell you about Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side. Can't get enough of Talking Pictures Trivia? Head on over to our website, YouTube channel, or where you normally listen to Talking Pictures Trivia to find the B-Side where we talk about the movies you love. Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side goes further into the movies we talk about on this podcast and compares them to other media that has been on our mind. Here's a quick sample. Today we're going to be looking at this idea of the objective correlative. And so what I want to do today is go through that term itself, the term objective correlative, and see how that make sense the history of that term and possibly if it is a good way to help define some things in the film afterlife and so let's start with mr elliot himself um, and so we know that t.s elliot was a poet and a critic his most famous work being probably the wasteland and a collection of poems that unfortunately inspired the movie Cats. And his most famous term that that derived from his critical work is probably objective correlative. This term he initially used in an essay titled Hamlet and His Problems. Flip this record over by heading to TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, our YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to hear more on the B-side. And we're back. Yes, it's that time, our famous Movie Rant. It's time for Movie Rant. I noticed, mostly in the second half of the movie, that the idea of the budget kind of was brought to my attention, and I don't usually pay attention or care about budgets of movies, but I think because the first half of the movie felt so much like a documentary, and it felt like we were in older government-style buildings, and maybe they paid these people, maybe they didn't, maybe they just took them off the street. Um, but then in the second half of the movie, 
Um, as Tom mentioned before in the trivia part, all of a sudden they were building planes and entire rooms and bringing in train cars. And so while you know the movie overall, I can't imagine the budget was anything crazy. It just made me question like, what was the budget? Where did they get these things from? You know, and then in the context of the movie itself, you know, in the concept of what are the rules here? Where are they keeping all of these things? Who is this team that is building these things? It just, it, it was just something that I wasn't aware of. And then all of a sudden was very aware of. I will say that that whole sequence at the end where they're throwing together the actual like stage production for the movies actually took me out of the movie. I think I would have actually been better off uh, or enjoyed it more if we just assume that they made the VHSs. So that was one element I was like, just for the same reason, it just opened up questions that didn't need to be there. And and maybe I don't need those answers. I can just take it for what it is. As Tom mentioned early on, he doesn't care about these things. They, this is the story I'm trying to sell and you just got to go with it on the other things. That's where I kind of got taken out. Now, if this movie wasn't made in 1998 and was made presently and there was more uh, use of green screens or now even in the Star Wars universe, they have this thing where they can panoramic put whole screens behind them and create sequences they're using in uh, The Mandalorian. Then I think they have a little bit more leeway to get pretty cool designs for these videos, but it, it took me out of it. I would agree. I, I don't think you need to, to see it. Uh, I think the one benefit though of seeing them make the movies is you know, you get to see these people kind of interacting with it, interacting with their memory a little more. Um, I had a little, <laughs> but I think with like, like you guys, I also had a little trouble with that. Like the, this, my, my one was the pilot, the guy, you know, who's like, yeah, it's just like what it's like flying in the sky. And then you see these kind of uh, cotton balls hanging there. And the guy's like, wow, it's just like, yeah. It's just like feel, it was just like what it was like flying in the sky, you know, and it kind of like, what, what was it? <laughs> Is that, um, I, I will say I'm glad there wasn't that kind of, uh, uh, you know, special effect job that was, you know, throughout this movie. I think if, if we had seen a kind of, um, I, I, I don't know, a high def version of this space, it would have also been um, in violation of the film's mood that, it, that it's trying to set. But yeah, I, I agree with you guys. I think that that kind of one little segment took me out of it. With the exception of the woman who was still mentally nine years old. And you see the flowers swallowing on her. I, I did like that. Um, yeah, I thought that whole sequence was very endearing. So even, even the guy with the plane, you know, he said, yeah, yeah, it's just like this. I also imagine after a week of doing this, you're like, yeah, whatever. Let me just move on. I'm so tired of thinking of these memories. And yeah, the cotton balls, it's perfect. Go ahead. But I, I, again, it was, it was kind of endearing that the social workers that were working hard all week to accomplish this got as close as they can on a shoestring budget, on a, on a thrift store budget, right? It feels like they're pulling these things from wherever they can find them. It also um, gave you a visual on the memories. I don't know how much of this movie I could have remembered if I didn't have that visual to tie back to all the interviews. I think it would have been harder to place everything together. Oh, I kind of disagree. I mean, I, I, what I remember, you remember a few of them more clearly because you see the woman on the bamboo, uh, in the bamboo forest, you see the, the plane. And I think there's two other memories, right? The flowers and the, the guy in the tram and, and the dancing woman, the, the woman who has a little girl danced, right? They also set up that apartment for the lady with the flower. You don't see it too much, but the tatamis were there. It was kind of... 
Um, I, I got so much more visual just from the recounting, from the people describing what they were going through. I think the theater nerd in me really liked seeing them take this story and creating it. So I liked that aspect of it. I wonder if like maybe some of it, but not all of it, like maybe not the plane, but like the room that KJ mentioned with the tatami, right? As soon as I saw that, my first thought was like, yeah, I've built something similar on stage. Like that's not right. Unrealistic. That's very reasonable. That's very, not easy to do, but you know, that's, that's doable. Um, and then the tram car, like that was even kind of fun, right? Cause you saw him in it. And then you saw the people on the outside, like bouncing and pushing it right to give it that. So like those pieces I felt fit, but maybe if they had like kept it on like the low budget level and not then showed you a, a plane that they just built that they had to go take pictures of because they didn't know what it looked like. And now they build it like it that's I think is where the disconnect was like keep it low production value like keep it as if you were a college theater group and you had to take someone's story and build it on a theater stage so maybe if they had just like brought it down a notch it would have satisfied both the the desire to see this come to life and see it all the way through but not taking us out of the story and it also puts the the filmmaker, it, it has this kind of meta reference to the filmmaker and the filmmakers as, you know, th this is kind of what we do. We, we recount your memories for posterity, you know, for this is what film is, you know, the best recounting of memories from the past that we can take into the future or, or something like that. And I think that actually took me out of it a little bit was this sort of, it felt like the filmmaker was including himself in <laughs> as, as a necessary part of, of society or, or, or whatever. Um, it, you know, so it almost, it almost had a slight self-indulgence to it. So another thing in the movie that kind of confused me, I don't think I understood, is there was one spot in this building where you could look up and there was maybe a hole in the roof and they kind of saw a moon but then towards the end of the movie, some dude lifted a hatch that the picture of the moon was on and he looks down and he smiles. Did anybody else understand that? I think just like I mentioned that everyone gets to their purpose on their own path, that was the, uh, the main character. He had to look up there and reflect. And that was just part of his journey, how his memory would work, which would then lead him to his memory of choice. I think it was just a, a slow positioning, but a positioning nonetheless. And now for the next person who looks up, they're going to put what they relate to. That was just my take on the matter. The moon in it functions as uh, what T.S. Eliot called an objective correlative. Does anybody know this term? No. An objective correlative, uh, T.S. Eliot did this in an essay about Hamlet, and it's kind of shifted meaning since then. But it's this idea of an object or occurrence in the world, like a physical thing in the world of the art or the poem or, or, or what have you, um, reflecting the emotional response of a person. The most obvious example of this is in movies, whenever there's a funeral, it's always raining. And so the rain reflects the, the sadness of the funeral. Nobody can ever schedule a funeral for a sunny day in a movie. And I, I think the moon functions in this way. It becomes, um, it's this, for Takashi, it's kind of hard to, to say. It might be like what you're saying, Nick, it's his purpose. It's it, this kind of, you know, emotional longing to be able to recast his life as something that gave happiness for someone that he could look back on. But remember when the boss goes in to visit Siori? There's one scene where 
the boss of this, the DMV goes to visit the female lead, Siori, and they go to the, the window and they look at the moon. And he says, I, I want to talk to you. And he, all we get from him is him going to the window and going, the moon is fascinating, but it looks different uh, depending on the angle. He says something like that. And that's it. And then when the next cut is him leaving, he's walking down the stairs and it goes, I hope she understood my meaning. And I, I think what it ends up being is the moon for her is, uh, is this kind of uh, emotional feeling she has or, or love for Takashi. What he needs is not, um, is not to have that love reciprocated. What he needs is to be able to look back on his life as being happy and then move on. Um, and so, you know, what, what, how he sees his circumstance is going to be different from how she sees his circumstance. And she has to sort of become respectful of it. She has to understand the meaning because he's about to leave. He's going to go that moon is going to be removed all of a sudden. And so I think that's, that's how I'm reading that, that, that the moon is this kind of, um, kind of what you're saying, Nick, it's this, this purpose or this longing that people have. And what you have differs depending on, how, on the angle you look at. So when that guy removes the hatch, then I guess it's now her turn to look up and look at an open sky as opposed to Takashi looking up and seeing the moon. Is that another symbolism of the removal of that moon? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's a symbol, right? I, I think it's just a kind of a repository of this kind of emotional state of longing. So I don't think it symbolizes Takashi or the desire or, or whatever. I, I think it's just something that kind of stands outside of them that can be a repository for that, that feeling. I, I took it as just a transition. She's now taking over the role. That's what the prior person need. There's new parameters, new person. And I'm glad Tom brought up that scene with the boss figure talking to her earlier. I don't know if this was because this was a foreign film that was subtitled. Sometimes you can get more from like the context in your original language. Uh, but I actually missed a bit of that when he's like, I hope she got it. And I'm like, wait a minute, did she get it? Do I get it? Like I wasn't exactly Sure. And I wonder if that was something that was just literally lost in translation uh, due to context clues and body language and tone in the, the native language. So that, that's just something I, that did jump out at me, that scene. They have to, so he does this, the, the boss. So the boss, the scene we see him in before he goes into her room, he's in the hallway listening to our leads, Takashi and Siori speaking. After he hears them speaking, and this is after kind of Dakashi has figured out that the memory his ex-fiance had was a memory of him. Um, that, so the, our two leads have figured that out. The boss overhears them talking, and then he goes into Siori's room. So it seems like, based upon how these scenes are edited together, that the boss is responding to the, the kind of closeness or the relationship that Dakashi and Siori have. Which is, a, which is different depending on where you're looking. Siori is seeing the relationship as the, the kind of um, center, or the emotional center of her experience here at the, the you know, um, Japanese DMV. Uh, and, and Takashi is now seeing um, this relationship as something that he's going to move beyond, that he's gonna transcend. Um, and Siori has to kind of acknowledge what Takashi needs. 
So one of the things that I really liked about this movie was that it took place in 1998, which seemed like a great time for this DMV. What did this DMV look like in 1898? How do you recreate memories back then? What is this gonna look like in 2098? Like, one of the charming things about this movie was there were no computers, there was no cell phones. Everything was still pretty tactile, but they could still record the memories. They could, they still had enough technology to get to this point. If this is the rules of the afterlife, what did it look like for the Greeks? What did it look like for? I think this is a very obvious question. First, you start with the cave paintings, okay? <laughs> and then they have the movable type, right? Once we get to uh, the printing press error, you know, then we move to uh, the, the old timey pictures, okay? It's a still. And we just keep working our way up. You know, now we got that um, simulation type stuff that I was talking about that they can do. I think they just kind of work their way through because they don't, they don't really care about this, the storage medium. I think they care more that they have the memory. Yeah, and it's, it's hard to say how they, they're keeping the memory with them, right? They see it and they vanish immediately. That's what we learn about. So for for our, our home listeners, um, how, how it works is they go into a movie theater, the people have had their memories captured. They go into a movie theater, they watch the movie of their memory, and after they watch it, they disappear. Um, and, and so, you know, we're not really sure how they're storing it with them, but I imagine it's just sort of the, the you know, you could imagine like the ancient Greeks, like 340 BC or something like that, that they, you know, put on a play nothing you know or like in 1600 maybe it's a you know japanese no theater and then that's that that's how the you know the kind of memories created but it, it's interesting because um and I, I mentioned before being a little annoyed by the filmmaker um sort of inserting himself as uh, as the protector or the capturer of the culture um but you know if you think of culture as as helping to shape memory how we see things is greatly inflected by the culture in which we are. Um, it would make sense that like maybe cave paintings, if that's, a, that's the culture you're in, would be the way to capture your memory because you as a creature that creates memories are using your culture to make that memory. Um, so if you're doing, you know, if you're in, in ancient Greece and you're part of that theater tradition, that Dionysian theater tradition they do there, um, then you would use the, the, you know, the stage with a chorus and all that stuff to help create the memory. Then, in fact, the, the culture does form who you are through this eternal um, recreation of your past within yourself. Well, KJ, this, while we had mixed opinions on the quality of this movie, this movie definitely uh, brought us into some interesting discussion points. Uh, not only about the portrayal of the thoughts, but whether this is a DMV or a purgatory situation. I still am inclined to purgatory. I do not see any motor vehicles in this station, but I do understand the point. Uh, again, I'd like to congratulate our winner, Rachel, who was not only gracious enough to join us today, but still took it down. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy day to join us. Uh, we had a lot of fun. I hope you did too. I definitely did. And I learned a lot as well. So thanks for having me on here. Again, I'd like to thank our illustrious editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. 
Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We're extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss Tom's recommendation from 1935 Rules of the Game. Very much looking forward to discussing that one. See you then. Ding, 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 ding.